find which ways you can provide value to people above you and then you'll you'll have more than enough people who want to do business with you so if you can basically find the things that they're struggling with and do that for them better or bring them opportunities the biggest thing that i learned early on was i didn't have money welcome to the wealth matters podcast where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo here's your host and co-author of amazon number one bestseller Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I have with me my good friend, Ian Tudor. How are you, Ian? I'm doing well. I, I'm grateful for the invitation on and excited to explore many aspects of real estate with you. Absolutely. So Ian is a finance graduate from Virginia Tech. He began his career in the financial development program at Genworth Financial. Uh, then he started moving into real estate. Uh, he used to write, um, underwrote over a billion dollar in acquisition and dispositions at Parkway. Ian left then to start Archimedes Group with Ryan Naruz in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I have had Ryan on the podcast as well last year. And I love talking to both of these guys. So. You know, welcome again, Ian. Absolutely. I, I appreciate the invitation. Excited to talk all things real estate. And Ryan has said very many positive things about you. So excited to see where this conversation goes. I appreciate it. So tell us something interesting about yourself. Something funny. Something which we cannot guess. <laughs> from, oh, from the, from the looks of it. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a, a great question. I would say... Um, the one thing that most people probably wouldn't recognize um, from me is that, you know, I, my, my biggest thing is I like traveling to relatively rustic places um, and experiencing those cultures. So for the most part, for the next couple of years, I have trips planned to pretty um, fun places. Like I want to go, I'm planning on going to Vietnam and Thailand. Uh, oh, as well okay. as uh, parts of S S South America as well. Very so that's kind of my next big project is to enjoy a little bit of the wealth that uh, of that real estate has created and right. allow me to go explore the world before I maybe settle down and have a family. So as long as you don't buy uh, mobile home parks in Vietnam, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I think I'm US centric for the while. That, that's, we'll, we'll see. Maybe one of these days I'll have uh, some international exposure, yeah, but for the sure time South being. America would have uh, a mobile home parks. Absolutely. <laughs> <not> Asia. <laughs> that's right. Hey, so how did you get into real estate? Yeah, so I started in corporate America like a lot of people did. I was not really sure what I wanted to do after college. So I took the first job that I was really accepted at. I, I applied to quite a few. That was in 2012. And there the job market wasn't nearly as strong as it was uh, in some of the years after that. But I got the job and it was a great experience because I found out what I didn't like. But I was able to find a middle manager and someone who I work for in that position and they opened my eyes to real estate. I had no idea 
anything about real estate. My parents are in the medical field. So I, ha I didn't really have any exposure to it growing up. Uh, so it was a great, a great learning lesson and just happenstance that I ran into a, a middle manager who just understood real estate and he saw the world differently than a lot of other middle managers within, within corporate America. So a lot of times I would just go in his office and talk to him about wealth creation as opposed to getting my work done. So it was, a, it was one of those things that my interest, my interest took me to where my heart really desired. And through that, I found that real estate was something I was really passionate about. So at 23, I brought my first house with my and a business partner or a friend of in college. And so I, I rented out the other rooms, lived in the, lived in the room rent free, which was nice. And it was, it gave me a taste, but I realized I wanted something more. So I started to network with lots of people in real estate of anyone who I could speak with. And through that, I landed a job in Orlando, Florida, working for a publicly traded REIT uh, oh. parkway par properties. So they did class A office buildings across the Southeast and Southwest. And that was my introduction to real, real estate. Okay. No, that's, that's great. So you started investing pretty much at 23 and, and you basically uh, did house hacking without not knowing that it it is called house hacking. So that's, yeah. that's awesome, man. That, yeah, that was, I guess, I mean, bigger pockets, I was familiar with it at the yeah. time and I spent some time on there, but I would say a lot of my education for real estate is just better on face-to-face -face interactions. And that was where I learned the most was from other people that were further down the road and were gracious enough to give me time to speak about all things real estate. That's awesome. So, uh, from single family house to parkway, a uh, REIT, and then, but how did you end up uh, in mobile home park space? Yeah, that was another just investigation over time. I never really knew mobile home parks was a asset class that I could actually invest in until I, I bought my first house at 23 and then I moved to Orlando in 2014. So I bought my house in 2013. 2014, I moved to Orlando for this real estate job and I started to look for another single family house to buy. I said, okay, this makes sense. I already have one. I bought another one and started looking around in areas and I couldn't find something that I was looking for. So then I looked into house flipping. I had a situation where I lost like three months of cash flow through my single family home because part of the AC went out, the HVAC right. went out. And then my property manager just charged us seven hundred dollars without telling us, and I was like, "This doesn't feel, this doesn't no, feel great." That's, that's the hard part. I love single family, but you know, yeah. it's it's that you are relying on that one asset, right? And 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 you you will have some cash flow, but most of the time people are looking at depreciation, right? That oh yeah, it's gonna double, and then I'm good, right? But right. you know, you if you have little cash flow and you get AC went out, heater went out, and it's all gone. <laughs> right. So several months, it, it was somewhat of a, it, it just made me realize, okay, maybe I want more units. Maybe I want a little bit more scale here. I looked at mobile homes too, because I said, oh, well, the capital needed to flip a mobile home, just one home, maybe within a park or on private land is so much less than a single family home. So I looked down, but my roommate at the time who I was working with at Parkway, he's like, why don't you buy the whole park? He was very savvy and just institutional real estate. 
said, why don't you buy the whole park? And I said, I don't even know what that means. So I bought some information about it in 2014 and started to realize that there was something here that I didn't see in other forms of real estate because I worked in office and I realized how much capital you had to raise to buy office deals. And then on top of that, once you own the office buildings, if a tenant moves out, you have large amounts of tenant improvements and leasing commissions that you have oh, to pay. Yes. But there's a lot more. Stock, right? <laughs> yeah, just because you buy it doesn't necessarily mean it's yeah. cash flowing. So there was a lot of much more capital. And at the time, I didn't start with much money. It's my family. Uh, you know, I I was very fortunate that I didn't have to pay for my college education. But I, there wasn't like a huge amount of money left over for me to go jump into real estate with. It was something that I just realized the amount of capital required to buy a mobile home park was much less than other forms of real estate, which yeah. which be, started to get really interesting. So what was your very first mobile home park deal? Yes, yeah, so my first deal was actually through a broker. We I was able to start a conversation in a relationship with a broker who was just coming into the game, didn't have a huge buyer's list yet. This was in 2016. I was able to I was, I was helping this broker with underwriting. I was helping with marketing, just saying, okay, I personally don't want this deal, but this is how I would think through it. Like, how would you answer some of these questions? And this, we had a nice back and forth relationship where I would give, you know, a perspective from a buyer. I got listings before they became listings. So I got, op I got well, opportunities to look at deals. Yeah. It was a nice, it was a nice change of value, exchange of value there that we were able to provide. Then a deal came across her table and I was able to get a, take a look at it. And I called another operator who's no longer uh, operating, but they were a large operator at the time. And I was able to bring them in and put an offer like the day it went on market. And we were able to get the property under contract before you know, before it turned into anything else because the right. buyer was, or the seller accepted that offer. So for me, I had some insider information which helped right. me to, to get that first deal. And we closed that in September of 2016. And that was our first deal that we did. That, that's awesome. So you mentioned broker on your very first deal. How do you find uh, mobile home park opportunities now? Yeah, I'd say majority of my the stuff we find is off market. So I do a lot of cold calling. Okay. We've done 16 deals of those 16, 60 plus percent of those have been off market through either mail or cold call. Majority of those are cold call. Uh, some are through a relationship or two, but I'd say 15 to 20% of brokers. Um, and then the rest is either through, you know, just a relationship or like, for example, another operator that may have um may have something that they don't they don't want to you know put through a whole marketing process and looking to sell we've done that once or twice i mean a few a few deals like that but for the most part off markets where we're going but we're starting to see the value of compounding interest in relationships so every year relationships when you view the long term in relationships they always surprise me every year i look into it i'm like wow i didn't realize that that's how far our relationship could really go. So we're starting to see the fruits of our relationship building over four years now, and we're getting more off-market, more opportunities from brokers 
one we've already closed, another one we have under contract that never hit the market, we were able to do from pretty rep, very reputable brokers, um, but that took us a while to get there. Got it. So what's, you mentioned cold call and mailers. How, how do you, um, do you have a team cold calling and how do you get all the details for the mobile home park owners, et cetera, for sending out mailers? Do you use tech, certain technology? Yeah, so it's a pretty cumbersome process, but you can definitely, you can, you can definitely, I, that one of our edges starting off, I was able to connect with a guy who taught me about building a mobile home park database and he really helped transform the way that I was able to find opportunities by giving me some of those things and very generous by giving that a lot of that stuff away. And he did that with a lot of people. And, um, so the process is basically scraping a lot of data offline and then going to the county records, finding the owners of those, then going to the Secretary of State website, finding the LLC, the owner behind the LLC. Yeah. Then after that, you skip trace the number. So we have that for about 1,300 parks around the states that we really focus oh, on. Right. Um, and then we've been cold calling for years on those and building relationships with some of the owners and when you own parks in the area that you are looking to buy it's way easier than just being oh, yes. a guy a, you know hey i'm in california or hey i'm you know in a different state i want to buy your park it's like oh i'm a fellow owner let's let's network i'm in over time you can build relationships that way right. so no, i I'm a little more indirect that's a that's a great point. So, and he, of course, you called out California because I'm <laughs> now. So you're right, though. Sometimes I'm able to make it work, and sometimes they'll say, "Oh, you never owned anything here in this state. Oh, you, you, we, we can't. We don't want to sell it to you. Yeah. Oh, can you come down here tomorrow, and we can discuss?" Yep. And I'm like, "No, I can't." So <laughs> uh, yeah, because with Corona and everything, I was, uh, you know, just uh, not scared of traveling, but more trying to, you know, be uh, safe, right? Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I see that point. So how, how to be competitive in mobile home parks? And that's, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. So yes, you find the park. Now, how do you stay competitive? So I think the thing that we teach, so Ryan and I, you know, buy a lot for ourselves, but we also have a mentoring business where we teach right. people how to buy mobile home parks. And the biggest thing we, we really focus on with people, which I feel like a lot of people don't really spend a lot of time thinking about is your strategy. So there's a lot of ways to make money in this space. Uh, a lot of ways to make money in this space. I feel like a lot of people use the same strategy of I'm going to buy nationwide city water says Sioux or hundred lots that are up and you know, I just want stable opportunities. And so if I use that approach, I wouldn't have nearly the amount of parks as I have today. Right. Um, and so we were able just to carve out a strategy where I can buy stuff and I know of opportunities well before the market does just because I'm much tighter geographically than people going after 20 states. Like I'm in three states that I own in and I have three or four larger metros that I chase. And through that, I can just stay competitive there because I contact those owners way more frequently than most people than if you had, you know, six states, seven states that you're talking to and 20 MSAs that you're chasing. Right. No, that, that's a good point, too. And, and you are so right, because when I started, even in real estate, 
And then in mobile home park, I was just looking all over, right? Yep. I was so, uh, and that meant that I did not have focus on one particular area or state, as well as I was just trying to figure out if I, when if I acquire this park, what will happen? How am I going to manage and how am I going to do all this? So yes, I also changed my strategy after acquiring, not even after acquiring my first part, but earlier this year that I'm just going to focus on this corridor. So uh, yeah, and I was already investing in Alabama and Georgia. So uh, I like that area. So my goal was mostly Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, up to North Carolina, the Southeast. And I know you mm-hmm. operate in um, some of those markets as well. Yeah. Yeah, it helps a lot. And, you know, early on, it's hard to, and I really adopted that strategy from Parkway because Parkway was very similar in that way. They were very smart guys who just figured out they they were even more specific. They were down to the asset level on what prices they would pay for certain assets within certain markets. So like they were hyper-focused on certain markets and they were highly successful at that. And they were able to, you know, be very, very selective and uh, willing to do things where people thought they were overpaying on certain assets. But the reason they did that is because they had so much built up knowledge within that area and so many built up connections that it was easy for them to make those decisions where other people from the outside would say, this doesn't make sense. I see. No, that, that makes sense. So what is your acquisition and infill strategy? When you say infill strategy, what do you uh, mean? Like how, let's say you, you know, acquired a park and just an example that, you know, 50 lot park with, mm. uh, you know, uh, 25 uh, occupied, right? Half of those are park owned homes. Now you mm-hmm. got to infill 25, you know, lots. What yep. would be your strategy? What is your usual strategy? Uh, is it park owned home, uh, tenant owned homes? And how are you going to target the, those tenants? Yeah, so this is another way where I'd say we we differentiate. I don't chase parks with huge amounts of vacant pads. I mean, I have, I put offers and I put things under contract, but, and we've purchased some parks that have more vacant pads. Usually vacant pads, I mean, it, there's a couple ways you can go about it, right? Is this you buy a used home or you can buy a, a new home to infill that. For me, it's really just depending on the quality of the park and the quality of the area because new homes, although they upgrade the park, there's a lot of benefits to having them. Not all areas can support them and your lease up velocity might be a lot slower than if you have a better priced home. So for someone to put down, you know, $4,000 and then have a 10 year rent to own or lease option contract, like that is a little bit harder than, um, someone coming into a new home or sorry, a used home where, you know, that lease, lease option might be, you know, half that time. Um, and so that they become owners and also just from a capital perspective as well, a new home is going to be $40,000 plus, yeah. you know, all in a new, a, a used home is probably closer to 20 to 25. So it's a capital allocation decision as well, which a lot, I don't think a lot of people think about it that way, but I definitely do. And I would say more often than not, we brought in one of our parks, we brought in 12 use homes just because uh, the all in basis for infilling the strategy, infilling the park and getting lot rent was uh, on a, on a just 
a return basis on the amount of capital dollars we had to invest was much lower. So right. we yeah. we prefer we preferred to uh, go that route. But there's many communities that if you have a lot of newer homes in communities, bringing used homes actually brings down the quality of the park. So you'd have to go to new homes um, to make that community work. So I'd say more often than not, we're buying parks that have more occupied units with homes on site than massive amounts of infill projects. So uh, you mentioned that, uh, so what is your acquisition strategy then? Because you mentioned that you do not um, acquire parks with a lot of uh, vacant homes. So yeah. what kind of parks do you target? What, what's your strategy? Yeah, we're between 30 and, you know, give or take, our, our smallest park is 20, I have 25 lots, it has 37 total. So we could add another 14, but 25 and then our largest is, give or take 94. Okay. So for us, we really play under the hundred lot for the most part, just because we feel like we can be most competitive there. Um, and then we usually buy a pretty heavy park owned home communities. We feel like those are usually more mismanaged than tenant owned home communities. So tenant owned home communities for the most part, unless if you want to be the guy who wants to be jamming, hundred dollar plus lot rents dump people's throats. Like I personally don't feel good about doing that. <laughs> you know, like you can buy an all tenant on home community for, you know, a five, six cap. If they're, if they're of decent size, those are kind of what they're trading right. for. Now, the only way you get your return is by really jamming down, you know, really massive rent increases. I've heard of people, you know, putting a hundred, $150 a month, I just saw a deal today. They're going to do $200 a month rent increases and they're going to do, it's going to increase $50 a month every quarter next year. And I'm just wow. like, that's brutal. That's yeah. That's unheard of. I have, wow. That is brutal. And I just don't want to be the guy who does that. So, I mean, that's not to say that I don't increase rents. I definitely increase rents on my park. I, I you know, I'm a capitalist at the end of the day, but I, I do have some empathy for some of these residents. Yes that you know if you're going to do something like $200 a month rent like do that over 4 years you know like don't do that in a year like do that over 4 5 6 years and let them know ahead of time so then they can plan accordingly but putting $200 on someone in a in a year it's really hard to move your finances around to right. accommodate that right no, and 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 great point i remember uh, glenn Esterson book uh, mobile home park manifesto and there is a term he has coined empathy uh, capitalist right so that's mm -hmm. what we are you know uh, when we are investing in mobile home park cuz everyone wants to make money as investor right but we also want to provide a nice safe uh, neighborhood for people to live in which is affordable right affordable is the key word there yeah, don't want to go from 200 per month lot rent to 400 per month in a year because that's yeah, crazy. Be, yeah, pretty much kick out most of the tenants. Uh, but uh, I want to uh, figure out the park owned homes because uh, I, I bought uh, the park with all the park owned homes and that area only supports park owned homes, right? So you mentioned that you try to buy those parks, of course, because they are mostly mismanaged and that's where we can create more ROI, right? Without yep. pushing the rent, or I mean doubling the rent, right? So how, what's yep. your strategy when you acquire those kind of parks with a lot of park-owned homes? So usually, you know, we don't want to hold park-owned homes long-term just because older park-owned homes, 
inevitably have pretty high repair and maintenance for the most part. And I'd say I don't look at a lot of apartments, so I don't know how true this is, but I wouldn't be surprised if a similar vintage of a mobile home park in a apartment, you probably have higher repair and maintenance on the mobile home park. Oh, yeah, and, I, I agree. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know if that's true, but I just no, feel no, it is. I just... do apartments as well, I <laughs> okay. used to, right? So you, you're right, because that's a true real building, right? And you have a lot of the roof and everything is connected, right? So uh, I, I totally agree. <laughs> So mobile homes in general, um, they deteriorate quicker than, you know, a site built building. They have to travel. They have uh, just a lot of their built in factories, which doesn't, it's not necessarily a negative thing. It's just, you have to know what that comes with. So mobile homes in their seventies, most people don't realize, but most mobile homes in the seventies, the roofs were more rounded. They're not, they're not apex. And so when you have rounded roofs and over time, you just have large amounts of rain. And sometimes if you had hail, if you had, you know, sticks or something fall on the roof, you get divots. And then that's when water starts to settle in it. it and it's impossible to keep water out of the roofs and you constantly have leaky roofs. And I personally don't want to deal with that. So I sell homes to residents for really cheap, well below market value in exchange for being closer to market rent. So for example, Say you have half the park at, say you have half the park at two hundred lot rent, but the real market rent is three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So if I sold off those homes, say I immediately even sell some of those for, say those homes are worth five thousand dollars, I sell them to them for fifteen hundred, two thousand. But then now they're at market rent, say at three hundred, maybe even a little bit higher, maybe you do like three fifteen, three twenty. What that does is now you can cap off that higher lot rent. And so when you get an appraisal and you see half the park is at 325, you know, 315, that is going to help your valuation way more than holding onto these homes with a shell value of $5,000. So for me, I'm, I'm trying to shift, shift the value to the lot rent as quickly as I can. Um, but the caveat with the strategy is, we buy in areas where there's a lot of construction workers who like these homes and do this. You know, a lot of our fixed income people, they don't buy homes because they don't have the money to fix them. So it depends really, again, this is a geographic strategy that we found that has worked for us. There are also areas where people are just renters. Like it's just a renter's market. Um, And it's harder for them to conceptualize the idea of, paying to own their own home because a renter and owner have a different mentality. Yes. Yes. So when you sell the homes, let's say, uh, you know, $5,000 shell value uh, and you sell it at 1500, do you also um, put it on lease contract or you ask them to just pay upfront and you're done with it? So, I mean, it depends on the strategy, how, how many people can actually do this, that, the downside of this is you will like most residents, I find maybe a third to maybe a little over a third of residents will actually buy into it. The rest will probably move on. They, they won't be interested in, in doing that. Um, so you have to just think through of the best way to do that. But usually I, I will do that. If they're a good renter, the nice thing, the hard thing with, 
buying a park is you're kind of just inheriting everyone that they've screened. And if they're not a very good screener, you can tell up pretty quick. So what you do find out though, is some of these people probably wouldn't got through your screening process, but you realize they pay every month. And so in that scenario, I would do like a rent to own or lease option in this, in the event that I know they're a good payer. Maybe they've been paying six months on time. They've never had an issue. Um, and then, you know, I would try to keep it less than a year or two because if you're trying to push towards a refinance and you still have a large amount of park owned homes right. it's going to hurt your ability to get the right appraisal value for that if you still own a lot of those homes so for me it depends on their strategy but if you're trying to refinance within the two-year time frame then i'll try to get as many of those park owned homes off the books oh, that, that's great so what kind of properties would you stay away from like, yeah. I heard your criteria, but you have certain criteria not to even look at those properties. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would say for the most part, large, like massive amounts of vacancy. Okay. Um, although I will say we're breaking our own rules because we have a 150 lot park under contract with 50 lots that are vacant. We were breaking our, it's just, it was so cheap that it, uh, it made sense for us to, like right. that, the price when you're buying something all in for less than $10,000 a pad, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to say no to that. But for, for us, for the most part, I'd say location is really big for us. So if, for example, you sent me a park in Kentucky, it's an automatic no, because I have no interest in being in Kentucky, just because I want to be within driving distance of my portfolio. So my furthest park is about four and a half hours from me. I, you know, that's in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'd, I'd go to Atlanta again for the right opportunity. And then, you know, maybe I'd go to Richmond, but that's about as far as I go. Cause I want to be able to say, all right, I'm jumping in my car, going to do something and I don't have to get in a plane. And that, so that geographically it, it puts out. So Florida, I don't do anything in Florida. I don't do anything in like the deep South Texas Midwest, like, there's a lot of states I don't do business in. So that, that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty strong and very strict screen that we put in place that we have not broken in. I don't see us breaking anytime soon. Uh, the second would be, would be just kind of probably size. So if I just saw a 25 lot opportunity within a market that we already own, but it was four hours away and it was very deep value add for me, it just wasn't enough money to be made for me to have to manage a 25 lot community four hours away from me with a lot, with a lot of just value add. So for, for us, size is also important depending on the length and distance that I would have to travel in terms of getting that opportunity turned around. So, you know, now that we have a lot more parks, we can be a little bit more selective in terms of, making sure that you know we are getting the right to return on time and what i mean by that is you can make a lot of money on paper but if it takes you 60 hours a week to get there yeah. is it really that great of a return like you have to always be and i've learned this from my mentors who have just taught me over time very successful guys that you know you can make say six hundred thousand dollars over three years, which is great, which is $200,000 a year. But if that stops you from buying any other opportunity, is that really a great use of time? Right. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe that. Maybe that's all you need. And 
then you're super happy and you have everything you want and that's great. I'm trying to build a portfolio. So for me, that would be an epic waste of time because $600,000 isn't nearly as much money as I could make as if I built a portfolio of hundreds of lots and there's, you know, a, there's a seven figure paycheck at the end of that as opposed to, you know, one 600. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Even, um, uh, you know, I was interviewing someone last week and uh, he brought up the same thing that not only ROI is important, but ROT is very important, right? Return on your time. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> you are working like crazy. And, and you and I, we analyze so many parks. Just today I had a park I was looking at and the owner, the seller told me, yeah, you know, uh, he will take 1.5 million. He's the NOI is 150 grand. I'm like, oh, 10% cap, nice. I dig deep and he's the one who is managing. So there is no expense for property management. I don't know what else is, right? And I'm like, are you paying yourself? No, yeah. <laughs> that's not 150 NOI, right? Yeah. So that, that, that's what it is again, return on your time. So let's take a quick break. Uh, I enjoyed so far. So after the break, I'll go through all the usual questions I ask every guest. You're listening to the Wealth Matters Podcast. The Wealth Matters Podcast. For more info about what we do, check us out at wealthmatters.com. It's wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, matters, M-A-T-R-S, dot com. Welcome back to Wealth Matters Podcast. I am talking to Ian Tudor, and so far he has just thrown golden nuggets for us about how to be competitive on mobile home parks, what what's the some of the strategies which you, we should use in infilling and acquisition. Uh, Ian, are you ready for five rounds? Let's make it happen. Okay, let's go. Would you be changing any business or investment strategy after coronavirus? No, uh, for the most part, I'll say we just doubled down on this business even more. Uh, you know, we'll be in general, I think we're more encouraged with what we've seen in manufactured housing, mobile home parks after the business. It's it's held up extraordinarily well. That's awesome. Favorite real estate or finance or any other related book? So I love Seeking, seeking Wisdom. Uh, it's Seeking Wisdom by Peter Bevelin. It's a great book on psychology. It has a lot to do with uh, just it also brings in probability and stuff. So it's a great way of bringing in psychology of investing, which we're all emotional investors right. at the end of the day. No, as much as we want to be unbiased, we have our biases. It talks about psychological biases. And then also it talks about probability and just some basic math concepts that you can incorporate into your investment process to be a better investor. I'm gonna put that in my list now. Any tool or website you recommend or you cannot live without? Yeah, I would say uh, having a great skip tracing service. So something like an IDI core where you can get direct to owner is something that has transformed our business because it's allowed us to get deals that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to get. Oh, awesome. Any advice for beginner investors? Yeah, I have a lot of advice for beginner <laughs> investors. We could make that a whole podcast if we really right. wanted to. I said the biggest thing for beginning investors to do is find ways to give value first. So oftentimes a lot of people, including myself, when I first started off is let me pick your brain. And that's totally fine advice, but find what ways you can provide value to people above you. And then you'll, you'll have more than enough people who want to do business with you. So if you can 
basically find the things that they're struggling with and do that for them better or bring them opportunities. The biggest thing that I learned early on was I didn't have money. I started this business with like $30,000. Ryan started with it around 30,000, more student loan debt than he had capital to invest in this business. So we knew the best value we, we could bring to the market was finding deals, which is why we, we decided to go off market. So find the value that you can serve to the market and you'll be surprised by how many people are willing to talk with you. Thank you so much, man. How do you give back? Yeah, so one thing we're starting to do within mobile home parks, which is great, we have a great supply of people who are, you know, the workforce housing. So for the most part, we're doing charity stuff within our community. So for example, for the holidays, we'll be giving away gift cards, you know, randomly to people who pay by a certain amount of time. So then help a little bit on their, on their Christmas expenses. Also, we've done things. We did a partial college, college, college scholarship for uh, one of our managers. And then we've also did just random acts of charity throughout our communities. But we're looking to in the next year to really unify that and have something very consistent where we're either giving groceries or some something to help our residents on a very consistent basis because we have a great population of people who we can help. That's great. How can my listeners reach out to you? Absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of ways we, you can reach out. Uh, as I mentioned, Ryan and I have a mentorship program based on mobile home parks. If you'd love to learn more about that, you can email me at info at mobilehomeparkmentors.com. Otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn. So you can look on LinkedIn, E-N-I-A-N. Last name is Tudor, T-U-D-O-R. Uh, feel free to look at me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty active on that. And then lastly, if you want to learn more about mobile home parks, feel free to join our free Facebook group, which is Mobile Home Park Mastermind. It's a private group with about 1,700 people plus growing every day. Uh, lots of it's a free it's a free group. Lots of great operators in there who are working together to help other people uh, learn about the space. And then lastly, my business partner Ryan. He puts out a podcast several times a month called Mobile Home Parks in Real Life. And it's a great thing that he's been working on for two plus years. Um, and he puts his heart and soul into it. And I got to definitely give him a lot of props for how much energy he's put into that because he's had a lot of great conversation. And he puts out a lot of great content. Yeah. And I'm part of the Facebook group as well as I listen to, you know, MHP IRL as well. So I would highly recommend everyone to check those out. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing.